Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the latest edition of March Madness 365. I'm your host, Andy Katz. On this edition of our podcast, we've got... uh, Let me just tell you, this is quite a show. Uh, A humble brag because uh, we've got tremendous guests with what I would say is amazing content across the spectrum of what we're dealing with, not just as a sport, as a country, um, as humanity. I'm going to be joined by three coaches, two Hall of Famers, one who I think will be soon, John Calipari. Tom Izzo, and Mark Few, in a roundtable where we talk about the lives of Hall of Famers Lute Olson, John Thompson Jr., both passing within the past week, social justice issues that have faced this country, sports in general, and their thoughts on when the season should start, how it should start, whether or not there should be non-conference games or just conference. These are leaders in the sport. You will be extremely interested to hear what they're going to say on what the next steps should be. I'm also going to be joined by Nolan Smith from Duke. Been on the staff now for a few years. Won a national championship in 2010. This was part of our NCAA social series on Friday night, and we've repurposed it for our podcast. And Nolan talked not just about the event he put together on Thursday of last week on Duke's campus where he spoke, Kara Lawson, the new women's coach, spoke, Mike Krzyzewski spoke, some players spoke. This is all raw emotion, as we saw with the NBA in taking a pause from games on the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, seven times in the back. And Nolan talks about being profiled. Twice, he will tell you, he was pulled over. Guns drawn for doing nothing. One, down the street from Cameron Indoor Stadium with Gerald Henderson in the car, two NBA players or players that have played in the NBA after K-Camp. Amazing. I shouldn't be amazed because it happens all the time. And then I'm going to do a special edition of Cats Ranks. Very difficult to do this. I had to rank the top 10 players or impact players, I should say, from John Thompson Jr.'s tenure at Georgetown and Lute Olson's at Arizona. So John Thompson Jr. was as an iconic figure, not just in college basketball, but in all of basketball. He was towering, intimidating, but he led, he coached, he mentored, he taught. He was a champion, a trailblazer, the first black head coach to win a national championship, USA Olympic coach. He was never afraid to challenge the system. And while he could be stubborn and intimidating, he was incredibly gracious, kind, thoughtful. Players loved him. He was so loyal to that university. And there are so many people in this sport and in D.C. 
that love John Thompson. Incredible family, stayed in the sport. And yes, Hoya Paranoia certainly has lasted for decades. He's got a tremendous legacy, I think, with Patrick Ewing as the head coach. But I'll just tell you that as someone who grew up in the 80s, in high school and college, watching those teams, uh, I'm from Newton, Massachusetts. Newton North is one of the high schools. Patrick Ewing played at Cambridge Ridge and Latin. Big deal when Cambridge played Newton. And I remember that whole recruitment, him going to Georgetown uh, and really helping change the Big East forever. And Ewing was such an unbelievable presence for years in college basketball and then obviously in the NBA. But they had such a great bond. So having Ewing coach Georgetown, I think, is just, you know, be patient, Hoya fans. I just think it's perfect. But I'll just tell you this personally. So I was intimidated, didn't really have a relationship early on in my career. But then as I got older, working at ESPN, then later with everyone here at NCAA and Turner and then for Fox Sports, the ability to just have some conversations with him and just sit and talk to him. I mean, that was something that, I mean, I'll never forget. And it happened as late as last season where I was able to just spend time with him in the hallways of the arena at Georgetown. And I, I was like honored that he would give me time. And I cherished those moments of being able to just sit and talk to him. So I send our condolences to the Thompson family to Georgetown because he was beloved and rightfully so. And he, he will be incredibly missed. His voice is so needed right now. It's just, it's just, it's such a shame that we're not having his powerful voice right now. Lute Olson goes from Iowa to Arizona and basically builds a program from the ground up. Very similar to what Jim Calhoun did at UConn, Lute did at Arizona. He's as beloved in the Tucson community as any individual that has ever walked those streets. I'll tell you this, on a personal level, once again, I worked out West, covered so many of his games, was there for that unbelievable Stanford-Arizona game that was won at the buzzer, a bunch of games that I was covered in New Mexico, New Mexico, Arizona. Um, but what I'll remember most is after he stopped coaching, um, I went out and spent some time with him. We walked the hiking trails in Tucson, and the more I got to know him, uh, the more I saw the other side of this classy gentleman who um, just treated people well and didn't get his full due nationally. And when he got in the Hall of Fame, it was incredibly deserved. Lute Olson, John Thompson Jr., Eddie Sutton, Lou Henson. It has been just a crushing year of losing iconic figures. I mean, this is aside from obviously what's going on in the globe, but you just think about these iconic figures in our sport gone with unbelievable legacies. So we're going to talk about them with these Hall of Fame coaches and Mark Few, who will be a Hall of Famer. Uh, that's all coming up in what I think is a loaded March Madness 365. Please. Enjoy what we've got for you here. And up next, Cats Ranks, top 10 impact players under John Thompson Jr. and Lute Olson 
at Georgetown and Arizona, respectively. Now, you could debate who was a better player, who was more influential, who scored more points and all that. And don't think about the NBA. Just think about their impact on these two respective programs. Opposite sides of the country. So I'm going to start with Arizona. At number 10, I put Michael Wright. At number nine, Khalid Reeves. At number eight, Chris Mills. At number seven, Jason Terry. At number six, Mike Bibby. At number five, Jason Gardner. At number four, Damon Stoudemire. At number three, Steve Kerr. At number two, Miles Simon. At number one, Sean Elliott. Sean Elliott was there at the beginning at Arizona. Really helped grow this Arizona basketball program. Miles Simon, of course, won a national championship. Steve Kerr was at Arizona during the time of his father's assassination in Lebanon. Really just embodies the true spirit of that Arizona program. Jason Gardner was a phenomenal winner. Uh, You know, a lot of these other players obviously were winners, put up a lot of points, uh, but they also embodied that Lute Olson spirit with this Arizona program, and they showed fierce loyalty to it as well, especially like Damon Stoudemire, now a head coach, was mentored by Lute. Uh, so a tremendous group of 10. You, I could have gone so much further on that list with Arizona. Equally as hard to rank the Georgetown players. At number 10, Fred Brown. Shouldn't just be remembered for that errant pass against North Carolina. At number nine, Dikembe Mutombo, overshadowed a little by Alonzo Mourning, who we'll get to momentarily, but obviously an exceptional career in the late 80s, early 90s. Charles Smith, what an impact he had on the Hoyas at number eight. Othella Harrington at number seven. At number six, Michael Jackson from the early 80s. Number five, Reggie Williams, same era. These guys played in multiple Final Fours, winning a national championship. Eric Sleepy Floyd, early 80s at number four. Alonzo Mourning. At number three, coming on the heels of his career of our number one here coming up momentarily. Number two, Allen Iverson. Just think of what Iverson did at Georgetown. The bond those two shared, Iverson and Big John. Uh, Iverson at his Hall of Fame induction ceremony saying basically that Big John saved his life, had all these football offers around the country, basketball. And then he had an incident in high school. No one touched him. But Big John, after hearing from Allen's mother, took him in. And there was just, there was love between the two of them. Uh, you know, Allen Iverson would go through a wall for Big John and he backed him up and look at the career Allen Iverson had. And at number one, it has to be Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing coming to Georgetown, really changing the face of college basketball in that era in the 80s, defined Big East basketball at that time and the sport, multiple Final Fours, winning a national championship, was as dominant a post player as we've seen, I mean, you can put him in the college ranks uh, of some of the greatest, like Wilt and Russell and Kareem and Walton in terms of college post players. Ewing is in that grouping, and his record shows it. And he had an incredible bond, of course, with Big John as well. Hard to put these in order, to leave guys out. Both these men mentored and developed unbelievable talent that went on to great things, not just professional basketball, but also later in life. They both will be terribly missed, Lute Olson and John Thompson Jr. And welcome, everyone, to a very special chat here in March Madness uh, with three, what I would say, I know you're not in the Hall of Fame yet, Mark, but you will be. So two Hall of Famers, John Calipari from Kentucky, Michigan State's Tom Izzo, and Mark Few from Gonzaga. Uh, a very special chat with the three of you. And let's first start off. Uh, with some very sad news over the weekend. Um, 
Lute Olson passing, and then on Monday, John Thompson, uh, two iconic figures in our game. And if I could go around uh, with all three of you, and I'll start uh, with you, John, and then Tom, and then Mark, um, if you could just reflect on the impact on both Lute and Big John on the game and on your own career. Start with you, John. Well, Coach Thompson, um, I made a statement today. I remember being in a gym recruiting, and he walked in, and the whole gym stood up and gave him a standing ovation. And so I slipped out the back and just kind of left like this. I'm wasting my time. Um, he also, I can remember the game against BC because I was in the Big East at the time, I believe, where he just looked at this new rule, which was the test scores that were, we were taking away scholarships. And he looked and knew what kind of impact it would have on minority athletes and said, I'm not coaching. I'm out. And I believe the other coaches joined him in that, which brought about change. But think of the courage that he had to speak truth to power and then put his career on the line to say, this is wrong and I'm not going to stand for it. Um, you know, I, I got to coach against both unbelievable coaches, um, the different ways of coaching and playing. But both of them, National Championship Hall of Fame coaches, um, you know, Luke was uh, out west and showed us, you look at jobs not for where they are, where you think they can go. Left Iowa when he had it rolling and went to Arizona where they won three games. And everybody's like, what is this guy doing? But he saw something there that no one else saw. Unbelievable recruiter. But more than that, uh, would bring teams together. Um, you know, uh, both of them mold young people and both of them were more than just basketball coaches. So well, I, I agree with John. I, you know, I watched that game. I wasn't in the big East, of course, but I watched that game and I thought John did it by himself, Johnny. I'm not sure, but I, I didn't think the other coach left. Right. Yeah, that's true. That, yes. He did not leave, but the other coaches that did not coach, I think were John Chaney would coach raveling coach Nolan Richardson I think all of those guys who uh, are Hall of Famers, by the way, and they just said we're out. There may have been more coaches, but I can't remember. Yeah, well, that's what made it interesting to me that he had enough courage. We sure could use him right now in the meetings, the committees you and I and, and uh, Mark are on because um, we need someone to stand up. And I, I agree with you. You know, I played against him a few times. My teams did. They were always the toughest team. Oh, man, they were tough and wouldn't say a word. They just look at you and it scared you. And he looked, you know, down on me, of course. But one of my favorite stories on John Thompson, two of them, every NCAA tournament game I was in, it seemed like he was doing the radio. No matter where we were, it seemed like he was always there. And that was my one-year reunion with him. But watching him with Louis Carnesecca wearing the sweater, that was priceless. That kind of told you that he's not quite as gruff and ornery as everybody thought, you know. So I appreciate about that, Luke. I uh, was in our league. Uh, when I got here, he was just leaving, I think. But the job he did down there was special, too. And, and I like what John said, two opposite ends of the spectrum as far as how they got it done. You know, the three of us are all jerks, so it's easy. We kind of we're, we're on the same spectrum. But those two guys were on one was on Mars and one was on Pluto. You know, I mean, it was completely different ways. And they both got it done, which proves that a lot of ways to skin a cat. Mark? Hey, hey, I uh, uh, enjoyed hearing those stories, but 
the, the two things that, that I want to kind of touch upon there, obviously they were both just icons in our sport. And, and uh, I mean, here I am from a little tiny rural town in Oregon uh, with very little of any diversity, but yet absolutely just loved watching uh, the Georgetown Hoyas play back in the day, man. I just, I love their toughness and everything that uh, coach Thompson uh, uh, stood for. And then also living out West really enjoyed and became a huge fan of uh, uh, Luke's team when I was first getting into uh, coaching, just how the style that they played, they played fast, they played loose, they played easy, but they were also, uh, as Cal said, a, a team. And the two things that I remember as a young head coach, and these guys can probably attest to this, it's not always the wins and the things that happen on the floor, uh, was John Thompson, I remember my probably my first or second year going to a Final Four, and you guys remember this, he's always sitting in the coach's lobby uh, right in the center, and him calling my name out in front of all these people and having me come over and sit with him, and, and he talked to me for 15 minutes. And, I mean, I, I couldn't believe that this guy uh, uh, knew who I was. And uh, literally, guys, every Final Four since then, uh, I would sit with him in the lobby there. He'd always have that chair with a bunch of everybody hanging out with him. And we'd chat and, and did, also did some NCAA tournament games uh, where he was calling them and, and was on his radio show. And it was, it was a thrill up to the, you know, just a year or two ago for me just to be able to be around him. And the other thing that Luke did for me that I, that I couldn't believe was on the Nike trips and stuff, he always just accepted me and, and put me in his golf group. And I was really unsure of myself starting out and coaching and just treated me as an equal. And, I mean, the dude was just the epitome of uh, class. Uh, everything he did and, and how he handled himself. And, and, and again, just became a really, really good friends. We ended up competing against each other uh, quite frequently and, and even had one of the great uh, NCAA tournament games and double OT or whatever in Salt Lake that they ended up beating us. Tom, you and Mark, isn't it something that we remember when we were young, how the older guys treated us? Like that always impacted me. Yeah. I can go back and say this guy, I don't even know how he knew me, but he treated me with respect. You know, so those two were those kind of guys that, and I'll say this, if you walked in a gym and you're recruiting somebody and they were in there. No shot. Oh, you left. <laughs> yeah, you knew. I'm telling you, I can't remember who the kid I That's was. That's how Rich I feel against you, Cal. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Tom, don't you laugh. You beat us every time we're going. Oh, yeah. Ahead. At least once in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I remember he walked in this gym and I knew the mother of the kid I was recruiting. I was an assistant at the time at Pitt. He walked in and it was like nuts. And you know who was the craziest stamping her feet laughing? The kid's mother. I just got up and they said, why'd you get back so fast? I said, well, I left in the first quarter. He walked in and I said, we're done. And Luke was the same out West, right, Mark? Yeah. I mean, I don't know where he got the name Midnight Luke, but man, I mean, the recruiting that they uh, did and, and some of those teams they had, uh, they were something. And he could go anywhere. I mean, he got the Arizona program, not just to recruit out West, but uh, were able to go anywhere. I wonder why it was like that, Andy. I wonder why, you know, John brings up a good point. Those were such good days, weren't they, guys? In my league, it was Knight and Katie and Clem Haskins and, you know, 
they wouldn't talk to you when you were an assistant, but the minute you got the job, man, it was like, they really looked after you. Yeah. I think we got to do a better job of that. That segues me actually into the McClendon Minority Initiative that, John, you were obviously heavily involved in, and you're all, uh, you know, trying to, to work with this as an example. You know, let's reiterate again, that kind of mentorship that you're looking to do, John, you can start there. And if the, the other two of you could chime in. Well, it's all of us, Tommy and Mark, the first two calls I made about let's do this. But we all were going through all that was happening and you had to step back and listen and you had to step back and reflect what, where do we have influence and it's access and opportunity. Part of it's in our own staff. And then the other part is in athletic administration. We don't have an issue with diversity on fields. We have an issue with diversity within athletics, but by using our athletic departments, maybe we're helping prepare somebody for some other field. And I say this, I made a statement and people got mad. I've had friends mad at me about white privilege. White privilege is when you're born and you come out and that doctor smacks you on the butt and you cry, you're white, you have an advantage. Where it goes, what you do with it, but you have that advantage. And I think for us coaches, and it's black coaches, white coaches, football coaches, baseball. Hey, guys, I got a call from a tennis coach that wants to be involved. We got over 80 coaches that are not only involved, they're funding the positions that we bring in, quote, interns or future leaders into our athletic departments. They have mentors there, and we're also mentors. And now we're all involved in it. Matter of fact, I've been surprised at how coaches say, yes, we need this. And then they're willing to put their money where their mouth is, which we coaches know we're all cheap as hell. We don't want to. But these, this has been easy for those coaches to step up and do. Tom and Mark? I, I would, you know, I think Mark and I would both agree that John did an unbelievable job. I mean, I hate to give him much credit for anything, but this was one of the great things he did. And, and I think what he did is he showed a lot of passion in it. I just had my first team meeting. You know, we got back today. We start school Wednesday. And I had a little outdoor social distance meeting. And I brought up the McClendon thing and what we're doing because I, I want them to know we're not just talking it, at least in college basketball. We're walking it. And we're trying to do some things to get more uh, people of color in the administrative side. Uh, I think he said it very well. You know, on the court, it's no problem. Coaching staffs, it's 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 getting better, but administratively, it's awful. And uh, and even football coaches, you know, head coaches, there just aren't many. And and I think he's right. I mean, he went at it. Mark and I joined, but a lot of other coaches joined. But I too would have to agree with with John. I was surprised, Andy on how many different people. I mean, it was such a tough time. We got the COVID, we're getting cuts, we're getting this and getting that. You know, we know what we need and uh, we're all decent recruiters. And I think we're recruiting for the future administratively. And that's why he started this out. Mark? Yeah, Cal and I talked uh, a lot about this when it was just getting going. And and Cal, you remember this. I, did, I told you, I mean, he probably will win three or four more championships at Kentucky and who knows how many in the NBA this guy. but uh, this could end up being you know one of the coolest things and greatest things that uh, that, the, the, that we'll all look back on um, and, and say we were a part of I mean we were just a part of and I, I, I loved it 
just because it was action. You know, it was, I mean, I, I'm, that's just kind of how I, I got to roll. I got to do something, you know, and, and this is doing something. And we all in different ways got our break and it, and it, and it most assuredly was white privilege. And this is just a way to, that we can try to, you know, help that other guys are going to get, or, or gals are going to get uh, uh, their opportunities, what they make of them, or, you know, it's going to be up to them. But I mean, we're, we're hopefully we're going to start slightly balancing the scales because they're way out of uh, uh, whack. And I will just say, I just want to add that two individuals at Kentucky, John, and, and if I can give you even more credit, but uh, you know, the opportunities now for Kenny Payne with the Knicks who was under your tutelage and Dwayne Peavy, who's one of the greatest people I've met in college athletics over the last 30 years. The fact that he, you know, worked with you in the administration. Now he's the athletic director at DePaul. That's opportunity. And it's just tremendous for him to get that opportunity. And I know he's just going to do great things. Let me, let me say this minority leaders.org. If there are any students that are interested, schools that are interested, coaches, minorityleaders.org. It's all on there. And let me say one thing. Dwayne Peavy proves our point, the three of us. Why wasn't Dwayne Peavy an AD already? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think for all these young leaders coming to us, they're going to rub shoulders with people they wouldn't have a chance to rub shoulders with. You know, and I, and I think that's what this is. Access and opportunity. Mark said it best. Now you got to earn your way, but it's hard to earn your way from outside the stadium. It's hard. Like we may have been in the stadium guys, but the three of us were in the dugouts volunteer. What were you, Tom? Volunteer GA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what were you, Mark? Volunteer GA. I mean, we were in the dugout. We weren't on first base. We certainly, the three of us weren't on third base, but we were in the stadium. This is how do we get them into stadium? How do we get them where we were? How do we get them to show what they are? I think we're going to have stars come out of this. I really do. And to uh, tie it back to the original thing is, you know, us taking the time to mentor them in any way we can. We talked about how much it meant to us when uh, Coach Thompson would acknowledge or Coach Olson would acknowledge us young up-and-coming whippersnappers. I mean, so that, that's another thing that, you know, we got to own up to and, and be a part of the process. All right, so Mark, I want to segue to the season. Uh, we know there's going to be an NCAA tournament in 2021. We hope it's the same dates. If, big if, if there needs to be a bubble, they can do that. So we're not worried about the tournament. It's going to happen. You can book it. Question is the regular season. Uh, the Division One Council is going to make a decision on September 16th. Is it November 10th? Is it November 25th? Is it maybe December 5th? Uh, so let's first deal with the date. And then how you could see maybe the non-conference or conference schedule playing out in this, you know, unprecedented time. What would you like to see in terms of when it starts, Mark? Well, I, I would just love to see it start in that window that all of us have across college basketball from either, you know, right around Thanksgiving or a little before or a little after. Because having been through that this summer with my own team, where we were literally all by ourselves on campus. It dawned on me that it's never going to get any safer or any better, to, you know, to try to keep your team away from 
COVID as best you can, which is impossible, but we were essentially in our own, and I hate to use the term bubble because it's different, but we were in our own bubble and we could, we were able to practice and, and eat and, and train and, and do all that stuff. Then if Cal's doing the same thing and Tom's doing the same thing, we're all chartering. I mean, it just makes the scenario as safe as you outside of the NBA and NASA. It's probably about as safe as you could ever hope for uh, walking around in this day and age. And I think the other thing that I noticed when you started talking to other coaches, just how willing they were to, you know, to hate it, kind of look at this thing differently and, and, and maybe we're all very protective of our schedules and it's a, it's a pain in the rear to try to schedule people. But I think everybody was so open-minded and so, like, hey, we could do this and we could just swap and we, you know, play instead of playing those one one off games, we could play, do a round robin with all four teams or all eight teams or heck, even 16 teams. And, and then I really think there's a great window for college basketball also with the void that's left by so many of the other sports out there. We could really have an impact. And then, and then lastly, I don't think, and Tom and, and hopefully Cal can speak to this, and you can, Andy, just how important college basketball is to the whole enterprise. I mean, it is the driver, men's college basketball for the entire system. And it's imperative that we do everything we can to have some sort of season because our players want to have a season. They want to play. Just talking to all my guys, I had many that were contemplating the draft and they came back because they want to play. And so I think it's incumbent upon us to try to somehow find a way to help them with that. Yeah, to that point, before you talk, uh, Tom, there's probably going to be no NBA, no NHL, no bowl games. So those TV windows in December are there for our sport to take. And then to your other point, yeah, there has to be with most of these uh, leagues not playing football, not having the tournament last spring. There has to be men's college basketball to help fund all these other sports that are you know, basically right now hanging by a thread or have already been cut. There's people being furloughed, layoffs. I mean, this needs to happen. Tom, what do you think in terms of a starting date and a potential schedule? Well, I'm right with Mark. I think all three of us have talked, and we're on a committee that discusses this every week. And, uh, you know, I, I think we have to play, and you bring up all the monetary reasons, but there are almost health reasons, you know. My wife wants us to play. I think she's sick of me, you know. Um, but I think the players, you know, we forget what it's like to be 20 and not get to do those things that they normally do. And that's why mental health has been a big part of what we're saying. We think we need more access. We need to help our players. This isn't about trying to get better and win games. And I think all of us agree we play each other three, four times, and we normally would never want to do that. But we just want to play good competition, give our kids as normal of a college year as they can have, and not worry about our records for one time in our life, just worry about the betterment of the game and really our country. I mean, you see what happens when sports goes back on. And I think on our committee, it was talked about no matter when we played the NCAA tournament, you forget how big it is when you're inside it. You're looking from the outside or you step back and you say, wow, you know, they, they could play that on Sunday morning. They could play it at four in the morning and there'd be people watching. So I think, you know, somewhere in that November, you know, Thanksgiving time, I do like the fact, call it bubble or pod, that we could, we're going to be here alone. We can get a lot done. We're a lot safer here. You know, during the year, it's a little more difficult. We got to worry about the athletic bubble, but we can control that. I mean, our gyms, our weight rooms, I think for all of us, they're cleaner than an operating room, for God's sakes. But 
their personal bubbles are what we've got to convince them. And that the NBA has led the way on that. And it's going to be interesting to see what the NFL does. But I feel like we really jumped on it. And uh, all of us have been involved with a committee that's really gotten on top of it. And I feel good that we're going to play. I feel good there's not going to be a lot of setbacks. And, and uh, yet the players got to do their job, too. We got to hold them accountable of doing their job. John? You know, we've been on committees and the three of us have talked. One, none of us on this call want any sports cut. We don't want any coaches losing their jobs or kids not, which means we got to play. The second piece of it is if our kids could vote, college basketball players, it would be 98% to two, and those 2% were walk-ons or guys that were mad they're not playing. If you talk to coaches, they want to play. Now it becomes how do we do it safely? Well, we're talking about pods. The way has been shown by the WNBA and the NBA. So we have a path. Now with testing, before you leave your campus, you're tested. When you arrive, before you play a game, you're tested. If there are teams there and one of them has a player test positive, they're just out of it. You never even stepped on the court and whoever's left keeps playing. There is not going to be competitive equity. Stop it. We may not play as many games as Tom and Mark's teams. That's too bad. Maybe we got sick. Maybe one of my guys had to go see his girlfriend at a party and now infected us all. We're out two weeks. It's too bad. We're out. So that has to be out there. Quit saying we all got to do this and all got to do that. It ain't going to be that this year. The committee has a tough job because if we all just stay in leagues, how do you do it? You know what my team my team wants to play outside the league, too. I'm saying I think it's important, two things. One, to really see who's who. you got to play outside your own league, okay? And whether it's what Tom said, if we go to the, uh, the Challenge or the CBS or whoever it is, well, you play around Robin. But I'm telling you, and Mark and I have talk, talked about this, we have to make sure that we're taking care of some of the smaller schools that are missing out on buy games that could end their program. Those are scholarships for kids. My son goes to Detroit. So I don't want that program to say, hey, okay, we're, we're done. We can't operate. How we do that, we, the three of us have talked. How do we come up with something? Is it push it forward? Is it give them a percentage by coming in all together and we'll play it together and you get something? To where they have something where they can be involved in this. I don't have the answer to all that, but I think that's one of the things we got to talk about. Non-conference, all of our players want non-conference games, even though I know it'll be safer just within our league, but I don't think it's fair. So I I, I don't want to, I want, before we wrap this up, I want to just get to that last topic. You brought it up, John. And I want to go to you, Mark, about the non-conference aspect of bringing in potentially these other teams to whether it's, you know, a neutral site, a campus site where you have, you know, a few elite programs. But then if you bring in these other programs from one bid leagues who then have to follow that same testing protocol when they arrive, we understand they may not be able to do it at their respective campus. Uh, Mark, how would that work to potentially include those other schools that John is talking about? I mean, nothing's going to be really easy in this, but it's, it's very, very doable. I, Cal and I were talking like Louisville and Kentucky play every year. That's a big game. And uh, uh, for them to be able to play, but then also just 
involve, you know, those other maybe grab three teams that they each have as part of their, their guarantees on their schedules and bring them in. Those teams could play each other as well as play uh, uh, Louisville and Kentucky in, in the, that same safe environment that we just got done, you know, uh, uh, explaining. And it'd be the same thing at Gonzaga. We, I mean, whether it's, you know, we play, well, I don't know if the Pac-12 are even going to be around to participate in this or not, but if they were, Arizona, I mean, we play them year in and year out. Now we're playing Washington. You bring them in and maybe you, maybe you involve some of these other teams like that, that Cal mentioned that are, are going to be totally dependent on us you know, trying to help them out and, and ensuring that they do uh, get those games. And I, th- I think it would look very much like uh, what we were talking about with, you know, some of the, uh, the higher level programs that, that, can, that can meet in some of these challenge situations. But they'll just be on campus, as we all can attest to, our situations on campus are very regulated and safe and, and uh, could easily accommodate, you know, three, four, five, six teams. Hey, and I do, I do want to uh, just touch real quickly on what Tom mentioned. Uh, we're, you know, privileged enough to have Dr. Hainline on uh, uh, the other day on our committee. And he cited something that I think jumped out at all of us on that, that right now, uh, uh, student athlete, uh, mental health issues are up. Guys, and you can help me on this one. I think it was 150% to 250% during this time right now. It's something that we never talk about. All we talk about is cases, but we're not talking about the mental toll that this has taken on all the athletes across all the sports. And, and I hope that that becomes more in the mainstream. So we are talking about it and doing something to address it. And obviously playing is something that does address it. Tom? Well, I just piggyback off both of them. You know, I, I think what, what all of us talked about was I talked to my team today about you got to be a better teammate than you've ever been. You know, if someone's not wearing a mask. You got to get a masked up. If someone's going to a party, you got to drag his butt out of there. You got to be a good teammate. Well, I think we're trying to be good teammates to our profession. And we talked about if we had some of the smaller schools, we test them. We put them in our hotels. We help take care of the ones that need it even worse than we need it. Cause sometimes it's about the profession too, you know, and, and I think that's been pretty cool on our calls is we're looking at, uh, we're all guardians of the game, as they say. So we're looking at the game too and, and helping some of the schools. You know, Gonzaga was small when, when he started and I wasn't at Michigan State and you sure as hell weren't at Kentucky. So we all started in Division Two or low Division One schools. We have an appreciation for what they're going through. We're all struggling. But I think this would be a way to help the cause of everybody and as one of the two said, let's make sure people aren't getting furloughed and fired because then we're losing coaches. And that's what we are. That's our profession. We don't want to lose coaches in any sport and uh, especially in basketball at any level. All right. Last thing then, uh, just going around here in terms of, let's say we hear on September 16th, whatever that date is, how soon after that would these decisions need to be made for a non-conference, multiple non-conference bubbles? Uh, you know, or we'll wait and see like leagues like the big 10, if they were to choose just conference only, but how soon do you have to make these scheduling decisions on what you're going to do to bring in these other schools after this decision on the date is announced in mid September, Mark, this is stuff that we've been talking about a lot in this last month. So I think the discussions have already been happening. 
I think there's some great uh, ideas with combining a lot of the MTE events or the guys are in the Champions Classic, you know, Cal's in the CBS Challenge, uh, we're in the Jimmy V. And there's there's a way to maybe to bring a lot of these under the same umbrella and, and do games there. And then I then I really think there's such a cooperative spirit right now that I think it's it's going to be a hurdle that'll be easy to get over. I mean, I've just I've so noticed that in this last month and a half talking to coaches across the entire country that it's definitely doable. It's going to take some work, but you know that's what we do. Tom and then John close it. Well, I, I just, you know, I'd agree. I mean, uh, we have been talking a lot about it and different ways we do it, but when you're not going to probably have fans in the stands for those early games, I don't think the urgency is quite the same. We'll find a place. Hell, I'll schedule one here. You at Kentucky can play you at Gonzaga and I'll play Northern Michigan. We'll have a nice little tournament here. That's perfect for me. But uh, I, I think he's right, Andy. We'll get it done. Uh, the scheduling part is not the hardest part. It's the safety, and it's uh, just moving everything forward, getting everybody on the same page, which I think we're doing a better job of than maybe our counterparts did and why things got a little crazy. Not that everything's going to be the same, but everybody's on the same page in basketball. I think that's big. All right, John, you got the last word. Well, I, I think, again, the competitive equity that is not going to be their number of games strength of schedule, all that's going to be different. We're going to leave it up to the committee to decide how they pick these teams for the tournament. But I think the other thing is you got to be a little bit responsible for yourself in your league. So I'm hoping that all of us are thinking ahead. I call it playing war games, which is what happens if it's this? What do the contracts read for our non-conference games? Let's know now. But if I'm in the Southland Conference – they ought to be talking about how are we going to get games? How are we going to get the buy games? What do we do? I mean, you know, we, we're here to say we're willing to help and we're all ears. How do we do this? Mark threw great ideas. Tom threw great ideas. I said this one, why wouldn't the NCAA bring in 16 teams to Indianapolis and play around Robin somehow? Because that may be what we do with the NCAA tournament. If we know you can bring in 16 teams and they're safe and we can have a tournament, why not try it with the CBS Classic and bring in other teams and, you know, do something like that? So there are a lot of things that I think will happen. But I will say you also got to be responsible for yourself in your own league, too, in what you're going to do. Great idea. And the last thing I will add that we didn't mention is officials. I think this would really help if there were centralized you know, little pods, if you will, so that officials aren't moving all over the country as well, which I think will help the health and safety of the game. How about this one? How about there are four of them together and they're that way all year? <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, you're not moving. We got the same guys. I mean, I've been telling our guys, we can't, you know, these guys driving to here, going to here, separate and come together, you know. So you're right, Andy, on that one. And with the price of flights in that, you know, that'd be another thing. You'd save on your own travel. I mean, there, there's a lot of cool ideas, and we've all hashed out a million of them, but there's probably a bunch more we don't know. The good news is we're talking about it, and we're, uh, we think we're moving forward. And uh, I know one thing, my first day, it's exciting to uh, get my team back, and let's play ball, guys, right? Let's toss it up. All right, well, I appreciate all three of you. 
uh, Mark Few, Tom Izzo, John Calipari. We're going to have a season. We're going to have a regular season. And you guys are going to be three of the people that are going to help get it all done. I appreciate you all. Thank you. And up next, my interview with Nolan Smith on systemic racism, social justice, and what comes next. Uh, Nolan, of course, won a national championship with the Duke Blue Devils back in 2010. Uh, one of the best games that I can remember covering uh, in Indianapolis, uh, beating Butler as Gordon Hayward's shot didn't go down, almost. Um, so that was one of the incredible highs, certainly in your life, in your career. Um, but Nolan, I, I want to have what has been termed, I think, by many people in society, and especially in college athletics and professional athletics right now, is sort of the uncomfortable talk um, with you right now. And, and obviously, this week has been incredibly difficult for everybody. Uh, the latest name is Jacob Blake, shot seven times in the back in Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, fighting for his life, likely paralyzed from the waist down. Um, it just is another name week, month, day after day that we're dealing with this uh, as a country. Uh, and certainly, regardless of what race you are, everyone should be affected by this. And you I want to first deal with what you did as taking action uh, and what you organized on the Duke campus this past week. So first walk me through your raw emotions that you felt when you saw this latest video and why did you want to now at least do something in the short term on campus? Yeah, so it really started, I mean, like you said, just a lot of emotions sitting in the house, you know, up here, up here in my man cave, watching a movie. And then I just started texting with the coaches and we were like, we're really going through this again. Like, and it just can, can continuously happens to black men, black women where they're getting shot. And it's like, you, you constantly ask yourself those questions. And every day it's like, when we leave the house for me, I mean, I've had the guns pulled on me two times by police officers. So it even hits home even more that I could have been a hashtag in my life. So when I see these stories and I hear them, it, it hits home and it hurts. It hurt. It hurts because, like, why did they have to die? Like, even if they were doing something wrong, but why did they have to die? You should not lose your life for doing something wrong. Should you be arrested? Yeah, get arrested. Go to jail. Walk it off. Whatever you have to do. But they don't have to die. So at that point, and I know our players. I know players all around the country have the same emotions that I feel because they are black, and. I was sitting here, so I texted a couple of our players. I said, how are y'all feeling? And they're like, you know, you know, coach, I'm, I'm messed up for real. Like, I'm, it, it sucks to continue to see it. And then you see videos of, of white men doing the same thing. And you're like, well, why didn't they get killed? Not that you want them to get killed, but you're like, well, what? you see the difference. So I'm having these conversations with them. And I said, you know what? Something needs to be done. You know, you, you can't just sit in silence anymore. And for me, I haven't been silent at all. I mean, I've been very active in the Durham community, but on our campus, I feel like it had been quiet. You know, it was, it was talked about. And then we got back to work, we started practicing and everybody's back to their jobs. And it's like, it kind of goes to the, to the back burner a little bit, not fully, but it's not talked about as much as it was when we're in the middle of COVID. So I knew right then and there, I had to do something on our campus that would just really be a conversation. So I hit, I got my phone, I texted Elijah Williams, who's a young um, student manager on, on our team. 
and I knew he was connected on campus to a lot of different student groups. He reached out and he said, I, I can probably reach about 800 people, but because of COVID, only about 400 of them are on campus right now. I said, cool, hit them up. I hit up some uh, women's basketball players and some football players that, that I know. I said, y'all hit up every single sport that y'all know and tell them we're on a protest tomorrow um, on campus at 145. Be there, make signs, wear a mask. So when I got in, coach, we get on Zoom at 930. Coach said, hey, there's a, a, a protest in Kville. Do y'all know who's organizing it? And I, I kind of grinned. I said, me, coach. He goes, that's awesome. <laughs> he said, that's awesome. What do, you, what do you want me to do? He said, should I speak? Should I just come out there? What do you want me to do? I said, coach, you do whatever you feel in your heart. And he said, well, if I come out there, I'm speaking. <laughs> I said, cool. Then you're speaking then. It ended up being just a beautiful scene with signs. Our AD, Dr. White, was out there. Coach Cutcliffe, Carol Lawson spoke. And it, it really just came together because I felt like our student athletes and students needed it. They needed to know that people on this campus understand that you're going through something, that you have a feeling, and you have to let that out. And I also challenged coaches on our campus to have those conversations as well, to make sure that their players' mental is okay during this time, and just to make sure they, they are always good. You know, Being at a predominantly white school like Duke, as black athletes, I mean, some of our teams, like the lacrosse teams and baseball teams, there's only three or four you know, black athletes on those teams. So, so having to open the door to those conversations, they're, they're uncomfortable. You know, and like you said, like these conversations are very uncomfortable, but they're needed. So you have to sometimes be uncomfortable to get comfortable. And that's what, that's what this time is for. And what were the action items that you guys uh, try to do uh, on that Thursday afternoon immediately? We talked to our guys, got their feelings, um, coached out his feelings to them. So the message for me was to go out there um, first speak, we had um, coach was going to speak and kind of address, you know, systemic racism um, and how can we combat that. And then he talked about voting. You know, that's the first and biggest step that we all can do right now is vote. And didn't you guys all register? We all registered. That was that was the first action step soon as it ended. We went in and got on our laptops and went on whenweallvote.org and got all of our players registered. And, you know, Kara Lawson's speech was incredibly emotional. Um, you know, discussing growing up as a black woman, uh, obviously, uh, you know, her players, I just saw on the video, they immediately came up behind her. Um, you know, everyone was wearing masks, um, except for the speaker. Uh, and, but, you know, everyone was putting them back on. So as, as to your point, there was, you know, it was COVID related, uh, COVID protocols. Uh, what'd you think of the way she, cause Carol Lawson, for those that don't know her, I mean, she's an incredible talent in life coach analyst. I've worked with her, obviously. Um, but she's relatively quiet. And that was a different side of Carol Lawson, just unloading the emotions, tears, and just letting it go, which is not yeah. a side that I think the general public sees from her. Not much at all. She's normally very cool, calm, and collective. Uh, just getting to know her these, next, these first three weeks of her being here, um, you never really see too much emotion out of her. So... When I texted her around 12.30, you know, I was kind of like, hey, I know your team's coming out there. If you would like to say something, um, let me know. You know, I didn't want to leave out any of the head coaches that I work closely with on campus. And she was just like, 
yeah, let me know. I'll, I'll be out there. So when she went up there and spoke, and at first, she, like you said, she couldn't get her words out. And she, you know, got emotional. And then for her team to go up there, it was so authentic and so real. Because um, I didn't know what she was going to talk about. I didn't know what coach was going to talk about. And so when she started talking and just talking about how when she wakes up and she walks out of the door every day as a black woman and started, you know, really getting emotional about that. It hit hit home to me because I have those same feelings when I walk out of the door as a black man, but I can't put myself in her shoes. Just like she can't put herself in my shoes, but she really just painted a picture that was just like, wow. And for all the people that are out there, white, black, that were listening, like you have to feel that. (laughs) And if you don't feel that and that shoe doesn't fit you, then you have to have empathy to that every single day. Not saying that you have to feel sorry for her because we're not asking for you to feel sorry for us, but it's just asking for understanding as far as when we're going through this and we're saying Black Lives Matter, there's a reason why. It's a daily thing that we go through. Nolan, you mentioned earlier, twice in your life you've had guns drawn on you. Um, If you can, take me back to each one of those instances. What happened? What were those moments like as you've got a gun pointed at you? Yeah. Um, the first one was the scariest one. I was in LA and I was with a friend of mine with my sister. We're leaving a, a burger spot right by LAX. How old were you? This was my year I got drafted. So 2011, this was that summer during the lockout. So, I was so you've already won a national championship. You're already a high profile player. Already first round draft pick. Yep. I was already all of that. I was just out there working out with some people, you know, Lockout, just staying busy. And um, so we're leaving the restaurant. We're going to fly back to Durham. So we're leaving the, leaving the burger spot. And I moved my luggage from the, the, the lady's car to my sister's car. And as we're going to a stoplight, a cop and the, the lady's driving, She they the cop basically rubbed up on the back of her car as the light was turning red and almost pushed her through the light because she was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And she just went. So as soon as he pushed her through the red light, the, he turned his lights on. So I'm just sitting there. I was like, kind of like, you should have stopped. <laughs> you should just let him hit you. She was, she was like, I didn't want to hit him. You hit the back right now. That's my car. I'm like, yeah, I understand. So I, I'm just sitting there. He pulls over. I'm thinking it's a normal traffic stop. So I'm just sitting there on my phone, um, texting my sister, like, hey, we'll be right behind you. Got pulled over. Um, so as I'm sitting there, I'm li- not paying attention at all. And a cop comes up on the right side of the car. And as I'm sitting there, boom, and I drop my phone. And I drop my phone. As I bend down to pick up my phone, I hear, get your hands up, get your hands up. And I, and I was like, this is when I start shaking. And they open the door and they get, at this point, the guns are already drawn. They're already drawn. So something was going on. So he pulls me out, guns up. So all I'm thinking, like, I'm in the middle of this busy highway. Like, he's about to shoot me. Um, so he's backing me up to the back of the car. He's like, don't move. So I just keep my hands up, keep my hands up. And during this, he's calling me boy. He's like, boy, if you move, I'll shoot you. Boy, this, boy, that. So he's calling me boy. So I'm getting, I'm getting angry because he's calling me boy. So I'm like, like, I, I know, know what that was. He was. So they kind of calmed down because obviously I'm listening to him. I'm like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I was like, I can give you my ID. So they asked me for my ID. And something in my head said, give them my Duke alumni card because it was actually right on top. So I give them both just out of instinct. So I'm like, here, take both. And something in my head said, you know, this is my, this is my white card. 
<laughs> this is my this is my get out of here card. So he comes back and he goes, "You went to Duke, sir?" And he starts calling me sir. The whole conversation changed, and so then they stopped my sister up in front. They checked the bags of the cars. So basically, what they told me, they thought they saw a drug transaction of moving bags to a car. So that's why they stopped us. And they gave me a license back. I got his badge number. Obviously, I filed a complaint. Um, not really sure where it went from there. Um, honestly, I'm just glad I made it out of there alive. How do you then just get on the plane, sit down, and not be still shaking to some degree that less than an hour earlier, essentially, give or take, there's a gun in your face or close to it. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and get on the plane and fly back east. Yep. Yep. It was it was tough. I mean, like you said, was definitely still shaking, still mad, still furious at what just happened. But thankfully, I was with my sister, so she was able to just calm me down and we we talked about it the whole five hour flight back east. Um, normally, I sleep on planes. I couldn't even sleep. Got home. I never told my mom this story until maybe two years after. You know, because I just some things you just keep from your mom just so she doesn't have to just feel that pain. Because even though nothing happens, she just have that pain and fear in her heart. She would freak out every time I leave the house. You know, but then when I ended told now she now she does. You know, she still worries about me. I'm 32 years old. And she worries about me. I'm going to make it home um, just off a simple traffic stop. So it was hard. All right. So now, I mean, that's one time, one more time than anyone should experience. What was the second one? The second time happened right here in Durham, North Carolina. Um, my own backyard, place where I played. Um, when was this? This one was in 2016. I was down here this was right after I tore my ACL the first time, and it was that K Academy. So I was 16, and I was with Gerald Henderson leaving a K Academy event. So we're leaving the event. We're actually headed to Coach John Shire's house. And um, at this point, I'm driving uh, my Tahoe that I had while I was in the NBA. Um, it had dark tint, 24-inch uh, rims, and apparently it fit the profile. Um, By the way, <laughs> a, a car that you earned. car that I earned. Absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead. Um, it fit the profile of a drug dealer's car. That's ultimately what they end up telling us. So we're driving from across to Cameron on Maureen, pull off campus, go over the light, go down the hill. And Joe and I both see a cop on the right, go a little further, see a cop on the left. So immediately right away, we, we felt like that was weird. So we rolled the windows down. Uh, NBA protocol for any NBA player that has tent, which all NBA players have tent on their cars. So they tell you, if you ever get stopped, roll your windows down so that the cops can see in the car, lets them know that you're harmless. So we do that. We cut the lights, overhead lights on in the car as they cut their lights on to pull us over. By the way, so, I, I gotta, I'm got i sorry, Nolan. NBA no, protocol, who's telling you that? Is that NBA security or is that player to player in terms of, hey, let me just tell you how it goes. This is what you should do. Who, who is advising NBA players to do that? NBA security. NBA security. So our, our, our team security guy's name was Tuck. He took great care of us. And at the beginning of the season, we have a meeting and they go through different protocols of what do you do when you get stopped? If you have issues, who do you call? They give you normally a sheriff's number for any issues like that. So um, it was very helpful, but obviously in this case, it didn't, it didn't work. So the windows are down. Then what happens? 
So we're on a two-lane road. So obviously I go real slow, trying to find a safe place to pull over. And obviously this is after the first time I've already had guns pulled. So I'm looking for a well-lit area before I come to a stop so they can really see in the car. So I go maybe another, let's probably say 800 feet, pull into a a veterinarian uh, spot. Their lights were on, bright lights, uh, and, and we come to a stop. Immediately they come out on both sides of the car with their guns drawn on me. And then as I'm sitting here, they're just saying, get your hands up, get your hands up. So I get mine up on the steering wheel and I look to on my right to Gerald and I had to tell him, I said, gee, don't move. Cause I, he didn't see the cop on his back and the cop actually had his gun inside the car on his back, like not touching his back, but inside the back window. And so he looked and so he was like, oh, so we got still. We obviously were very polite with them. We're like, yes, sir. We're coming from Duke. They started asking us questions. What were the races of the police officers? White. Two white cops on both sides. Um, during this time, more more cars pulled pulled up behind us. So it was about five cars at this point. They're asking us questions. We're telling who we are, telling where we play. They're asking, Gerald, what do you do? He's so no, none of the police officers recognized you guys? Nope. Until they finished their questions. Um, you know, and during, during this whole story, I'm just like, when it's all said and done, Joe and I are like, why didn't they just run the plates? <laughs> if they ran the plates, they would have saw the car was registered in my name. Then they might've saw that there was nothing to worry about. No warrants, no past history, whatever on their little computers that they all have in their cars. But they obviously chose not to do that on this night. Um, but we made it out of there, obviously. And, uh, that at the end, they end up asking Gerald for his autograph. One was a Charlotte Hornets fan. They asked him for his autograph, and obviously we said no. <laughs> we said, no, not tonight. Maybe another day, but not tonight. What was the reaction when you told Coach K those stories? Uh, Coach only knows of the one in Durham. Um, well, I, I, I shared the one with him on a brotherhood call that we've had during this time. Um, I shared it with you know, all the players. The one in Durham our, or the one in L.A.? Uh, the one in L.A., he knew about the one in Durham because I tweeted about it um, that night. And then the next day he talked to us face to face and he was just like visibly upset. And the best part, the best part of the story for me is that week I'm in the gym working out and he does a lot of stuff with the Durham sheriff and Durham police. So they actually came in that week and he said to the sheriff and all the other cops, he said, if you see my players, you leave my players alone. <laughs> and Lily with a straight face, and they were all just kind of like, <laughs> like he he definitely took it to heart and took it personal that it happened to somebody that he he truly cares about. So what's it like being black on Duke's campus? Uh, it's great. I mean, I definitely had no issues. You know, I had no issues when I was there. Um, but I've obviously heard stories from other people that, you know, they don't have that same experience. You know, there's campus police and I've had some campus police racial profiles, some some people that I've known because they might have been walking to the library late at night with a hood on. They're like, hey, let me see your campus ID. So they assume that they don't go there <laughs> based on the fact that they're black and it's a predominantly white school. So just hearing stories like that, I'm like, honestly, I know I'm fortunate because I played basketball. So as a basketball player on campus, I'm going to be loved by everybody. They're going to know my face. They're going to they're going to take care of me. The love is is real, 
when it comes to me on campus. Um, but overall, camp- campus life is is different, you know, and and there's the AD and the coaches on campus, you know, it's great. It's great people there. They all have a great feel for the athletes, you know, but just the, you know, overall dynamic that you are the minority there can make it different. You know, everything that you've said, and, and it's just so tragic, but it's so true, is that when you are off the court and those adoring Cameron crazies or in the NBA, you know, they see your name, they see you in that jersey. But as you just told us, you know, in regular daily life, you're still a black man in America. And it doesn't matter where you played, how many points you scored. Um, How scary is that knowing that as great a career as you can have, it still boils down, for some people, obviously, it still boils down to the color of your skin. Yeah, no, it's it's 100% scary. 100% scary. And, you know, it's happened to me. It's happened to Dabo Cephalusha um, in New York. Like, it happens. So when you take that jersey off and that, or when that ball stops bouncing and you might not have that fame or whatever, but at the end of the day, you put on some regular clothes and you go to that 7-Eleven or gas station late at night, understand that we are just a black man and we might fit the description on any night and you might run into some cops, the not good ones on any given night and it might escalate, unfortunately. And that's, that's the scary part that I think is black men, black women that we deal with every single day. So Nolan, I, I just want to turn here to what's next. Um, yep. We saw the action that the NBA, the WNBA took. Uh, obviously, uh, other sports did as well. Um, you know, tennis players, Naomi Osaka, uh, MLS, not everyone in Major League Baseball, but some, the, some in the NHL. But college basketball, college athletics, what do you anticipate happening next year as we hopefully get to competition later in the fall into the winter um, in terms of actionable items, uh, whether it's on the floor, jerseys, statements made, things to keep this going, a focal point, and hopefully there won't be, you know, other other videos for, for us to see, but just still to, to affect change. Yeah, no, I definitely, you know, for me, I think it's um, the head coaches will have a huge responsibility of using their voices and their platforms um, at all ACC schools, Big East, Big, Big 12, all of them are going to have a responsibility to speak out. Um, I touched on a little bit yesterday, you know, at the, at, at the protest that, you know, even though we're back to X's and O's and defensive game plans, we have to com- keep our minds also on the bigger picture of equality and, and, and defeating systemic racism. And then also continue to empower our student athletes to have a voice. Um, and student athletes should absolutely use their platforms after a game um, to speak on whatever it is they want to speak on, you know, and until, you know, across the board, across the landscape of college sports, um, when it comes to jobs and equal opportunities for all people, you know, I think this should continue. And I think um, Kyle Perry has done a great job um, with the McClendon minority program that him and uh, Tommy Amaker, what they've started is a great thing. It's a great start to just open, open the doors to, to black people and get, get them there. Um, but the people right now in places of power, 
is no secret that they're white people. And if they use their voices and use their places of power for, for the greater good and to help all people, that's where the real change is going to come. And until then, it's just definitely going to just keep our foot on the gas and using our voices until the change comes. Yeah, I mean, the systemic racism permeates all forms of society. Uh, it's not obviously just the violence that we see on video. It is, as you said, it's getting opportunities. It's not being profiled when you're going to buy your house in a, in a nice suburban community, when you're going to buy that car, when you're just driving down the street and you get profiled. So there's so many layers. And Coach K, I know, talked about that on Thursday. And, uh, and so did you as well. Nolan, I, I deeply appreciate this. Uh, this is an ongoing conversation that we all must have. Black, white, brown, doesn't matter to hopefully correct hundreds of years of wrongs in this country. And it can start by doing the little things like you did on campus on Thursday. Nolan, I appreciate it. As always, stay safe, everyone. And that'll wrap up this edition of March Madness 365. As always, I want to thank our staff at Turner Sports, Chad Acock, Abby Stoltz, Michael Kaplan, Sean Bartley, everyone at NCAA.com who helps us repurpose this. Uh, Appreciate all our listeners, all the engagement. As you heard, we're going to have a season. may look different, may not be fair, but it's going to happen. We'll know more in the coming weeks. Thanks again. Stay safe, everyone.